Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And this is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. And we have with us the Honorable Joshua Garcia, the mayor of Holyoke. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, for being with us. We really appreciate your time. And I'd like to begin by asking you about what has been in the news in the last week, which is a lot of money being spent in Holyoke on a lot of really uh, significant projects. Uh, Some of them are uh, things that affect the entire valley. Uh, and Western Massachusetts, such as the Victory Theater Project. Others are singular to Holyoke, but raise issues that are important to uh, municipalities across the region, such as uh, Shot Spotter and uh, funding of police. So I'd like to ask you where you came out and where the city comes out with regard to spending what I take it is the last of the ARPA funds. So talk to us. Good morning, and, and, and thank you for uh, allowing me to have a short uh, break here, um, and I'm happy to be back. Uh, we've spent a lot of time trying to get through this budget season and uh, preparing to enter the new fiscal year. Um, as far as ARPA is concerned, we have about $19 million we're getting. Uh, I'm in the process of finalizing at the moment. I should be announcing, we're looking at Friday, having a press conference to announce um, the final ARPA allocations, and uh, without saying too much, um, you know, we have a lot of municipal needs as far as deferred capital maintenance is concerned, so in this round, we're certainly going to be investing a lot in our own city needs, um, and then there's also, sorry, Bill, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. The sound quality isn't great, I'm afraid. Uh, we think it might be on your end, but let's do this for a few minutes, and then during the break, we'll try to fix it up. So, uh, yeah, so as far as ARPA is concerned, there are some, some housing projects we're looking forward to fund, um, but also taking care of our own needs as far as deferred maintenance is concerned. Um, and, you know, there are some fun projects, as you know, committed $2 million to support uh, the Victory Theater project and a lot of exciting things happening on that front. Um, and we'll continue to invest in ShotSpotter as we... Uh, continue to use the system and evaluate its effectiveness. Tell us, if you would, please, about the Victory Theater, because I think I read that there was another half a million dollars coming out of the ARPA funds for the Victory Theater, and this has been a project ongoing in Holyoke for years and years. Uh, There has been enormous promise, and I'm not clear on how much progress. Where does that stand? Well, so, you know, you're about to find out. (laughs) <laughs> this is Friday's press conference. We're trying to we're trying to uh, get oh, the news before it's news. I'm, I, it's no news that I'm I announced I'm committing two million dollars um, to the project. Uh, but since that announcement, there's been a lot of new uh, development, and I think that folks are going to see that project close sooner than what we think. But you know, I want to uh, leave that level of excitement to come out when it does. So. I know there's a lot of skepticism and concerns around where this project sits, but I think that's what makes this a fun and an exciting uh, project. When it's all said and done, um, I think there's going to be a lot of, of you know relief to know that finally we've gotten there. So um, they won't be in this announce this Friday's announcement, with the exception to my two million dollar commitment. But again, I think that's what project's going to come up a lot sooner than what people think. So, uh, Mayor Garcia, 
I'd like to uh, spend another minute with you on this uh, issue of the Victory Theater because it is such of such significance to Holyoke potentially and significance to the entire region to have a venue. Uh, a magnificent venue restored and a very large and magnificent venue restored. I'm wondering what you have done, what your administration has done in terms of planning for use of the building, because it's one thing to get to a building, that would be an enormous milestone, but it's something else to have an entire infrastructure there for the use and utilization of the building. So can you tell us what that the stage of that planning, what, what that planning is like? Well, right now, as far as our involvement, the administration's involvement is concerned, has been, as we have these conversations with our legislatures and, and the governor's administration, and as, well, as well as our um, representatives in Congress um, and, and the Senate, uh, we, we have this uh, project as our, one of the top three project priorities for us. And so we continue to advocate for it uh, behind the scenes, uh, uh, connecting with um, whether if it's investors or um, representatives in government, continuing to let them know that this is a project that's a priority of this administration and um, uh, any support that we can get um, is, is greatly appreciated. So because of that level of support and weight is what has caused, you know, I believe this gap um, uh, to soon come to fruition. So, um, you know, like I said, we, this is a, a priority project for us. Um, and when those conversations continue, we continue to, um, uh, you know, uh, let people know how important this is, not just for this community, but for the region um, and uh, for the arts and the culture. So uh, I'm really excited about um, how far it's, it's gotten. You know, I, I obviously I, I, I um, you know, there's 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 still that concern of whether or not we can really make it happen. But you know, uh, I'm really optimistic, and so um, I, you know, when we get to a point where we finally can do a ribbon cutting, I think you know, um, folks can reflect how long, how far we've come, and, and really finally take advantage of this asset. We are speaking with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia, on this Mayor's Monday. We're going to take a quick break. We are going to fix the sound quality issue, and we'll be right back with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia, right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. 
I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The HUG plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Francis Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at HugYourMoney.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. On this Mayor's Monday, we continue our conversation with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. We have been talking about the Victory Theater, which is a, and will be, I think a 1,300-seat venue. Uh, It will be a regional uh, venue for the arts and the performing arts. It's, but it's more than that in your in your uh, planning as well, Mr. Mayor. Uh, it's going to be used for many local events. Can you tell us about that aspect of the planning? So with this, with this kind of facility and the scale, it's going to support a lot of needs that require, you know, the amount of people that, that show up and, and whatever is being presented. But it's going to be multi-use, um, whether if it's uh, for for uh, local events, private events, um, you know, small conferences. Um, there's an educational and art component. There's theater, um, uh, musical performances. You know, it's it's it it's going to be a hub for a lot of different um, uh, you know community congregating of all sorts. And also importantly, is the secondary impact that this is going to uh, create for the community and for the region. People from everywhere coming, um, uh, you know, to this facility for whatever is being, um, whatever the the engagement is, and so you know the the things around it, the impacts around it to um, local businesses um, and other community related activities. So it's um it's it's more. This is not just a neighborhood theater. Um, this is not just a a stage. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's going to be, it's much bigger than that. And it's going to offer a good impact. Are we talking about a year, two, three? Oh, no. Wouldn't you like I, to know? Yes, I would. <laughs> I would actually. <laughs> <laughs> the excitement and anticipation is real. It is. It is. I, I would like to ask this because on the uh, front page of one of the sections of the Republican this morning, there was an article about Eric Schuer and his problems with venues in the city of Northampton. And it brought to mind, as I was thinking about uh, our conversation, whether or not the Victory Theater uh, is going to, how the Victory Theater can be used as part of the regional uh, arts and entertainment scene, as opposed to simply being in competition with what will be Presumably, the reopening of the Calvin Theater, for example, in New, in, in Northampton, and competition, frankly, with MGM and the acts that, that the uh, casino tries to bring in. So, your your thoughts about that? I, I don't think that there's it's competition. I think it just adds value to what the region offers. Uh, each of these facilities you just mentioned has a different scale 
of um, uh, engagement with whatever the activity is. And so, you know, unlike in Boston where, you know, everything's in Boston, here in Western Mass, you know, we have to, we have to act and think regionally and we have to understand you know what what is it that other communities do and how can the city of Holyoke add value to what's great about the Pioneer Valley region and so the Victory Theater I think adds value to that that greater effort um, and doesn't necessarily compete because again when it comes to the Calvin when it comes to uh, the uh, MGM they're, they're off there's a different scale of activity that they're offering to, to the fabric of what's happening here in the region. While on the topic of uh, the Calvin, I'm wondering if you can tell us anything about the relationship between the city of Holyoke and Eric Shore. Uh, Eric has, Mr. Shore, has been in very much in the news in Northampton, uh, given a deadline to reopen his venues and having sold one of his properties to the city for the uh, uh, resilience hub for $3.3 million. Uh, his press uh, in and around Northampton has been, uh, let's put it this way, not great recently. Uh, and I'm wondering whether or not the large number of uh, properties that he owns in Holyoke have been problematic in any way or whether his relationship and his uh, relationship with the city of Holyoke has actually been uh, different. Well, as far as the city holy is concerned, we have no no issues with with uh, Mr. Shore. I mean, he owns a handful of properties. He pays his taxes. He appropriately manages and maintains them. Um, so it hasn't raised to the scale of other uh, properties we have in town that our property preservation group has been dealing with. Um, he's we have regional we have a quarterly manufacturing roundtable meetings where I meet with all the um, uh, City of Holyoke local uh, business owners that own um, industry and and um, he goes to each one and engages in those conversations. And when there is um, something and I give Eric a call, he he's very responsive. I I've had zero um, issues um, uh, with with Mr. Shore to date. Uh, you know, does he he does own a couple of properties that you know there's like let's say for example the Mont Tom area where he was trying to turn it into a music venue um but you know nothing that raises to the scale of concern where um it's frustrating to the administration he's he pays taxes he manages it um uh, and i understand too when you own things like that as a property owner it, it can be complex um especially in this time um of of our history here uh and so you know the administration, just like any other property owner, will work with folks and try to help navigate things and see where we can be helpful. Um, sometimes some projects or some properties come to fruition. Other times, you know, folks sit on them for a bit and for until there's an opportunity. Um, but our experiences so far hasn't been nowhere near what Northampton might be experiencing with Mr. Shore. I'd be interested to know this aspect of Holyoke and its finances and its budget and its planning, ARPA funds are coming to an end. Uh, you're, the city of Holyoke is expending, as I understand, it's sort of the last, but it's a large, It's a we're talking about millions of dollars, but that ARPA funding is coming to an end. Is that going to 
adversely affect the city in some way in terms of its ongoing finances and paying for all the things that a city, your city, pays for? Yeah, ARPA, we have another three years to expend it all, although we have a remaining $19 million that we're currently in the process of uh, committing. And, and in that process, while also at the same time we take care of our own you know how we're managing resources and keeping up with our needs you know we're looking at the use of arpa to that it's strategic focus and has a long-term impact and that also includes uh taking you know making sure we're able to invest those in ourselves as a city we're eligible as we continue to close this management gap, you know, we do have a capital stabilization account that we recently created and that we're trying to grow. Um, we're also, you know, as I put my budget together every year, um, we grow a surplus in the hopes that, you know, again, as you know, year one, year two goes by year three, now we have no more ARPA. Uh, we're able to catch up with our needs and self-sustain ourselves within our own, um, you know, municipal finances. And so they kind of go hand in hand. So ARPA has been great, gives me a, a, a great deal of flexibility as I um, continue to um, focus on our number one priority, which has been to strengthen internal controls and strengthen our management positions of city finances so that we're no longer dependent on that level of flexibility we've been having with ARPA. So, you know, we've been very um, focused and strategic on that front. And 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 um, uh, as we, you know, as we try to like keep the, the airplane, you know, we're, it's a little bit of a turbulence, but we're, we're keeping it balanced here. OK, uh, well, uh, Captain and Mayor uh, Joshua <laughs> Garcia, uh, I would like I would like to ask you this because it's this is a topic that we've uh, been discussing with a number of the mayors. And we so, so pleased you can be back on our show with us today. I we've been talking with the mayors about uh, police and overtime and recruiting and shortages in the police department. And I'm wondering what the status is of those issues in Holyoke. Uh, is the city uh addressing this question of overtime, which was a big issue in Holyoke before it came to the fore in some of some of the other cities in the region? Uh, and or is there a shortage? That is, there are vacancies in the police department. So where does that stand in Holyoke? Well, shortages and vacancies are all and, and, and need are all interconnected to the impact of overtime. And I know when when and I think we talked about this at one of your previous shows, when, when we look at what an officer is getting because of overtime at, at face value, it, it, it's frustrating and it frustrated me, but when you break it all down, it makes sense. And, and it is tied to shortages for the first time in 15 years, um, you know, we're gonna have, um, uh, you know, we budgeted for 92. Um, for the first time in 15 years, we're gonna hit that number. We have a-, a Nine, 92 of officers? Patrol officers, yeah. Patrol officers, we have always been around 82. And even much less than that when you're talking about folks on leave for, for XYZ reasons. Um, and so, you know, we've put a strong focus on getting that number up. Uh, um, a handful of them are all at the academy right now. They're not going to be available until the fall. So that's where it gets complicated. It's not like, you know, hey, Bill, you want to be a police officer? You start next week. 
you know, it's, it takes about a year before we can get you trained up and and where you need to be before we get you patrolling our streets. So um, we've put a lot of attention and focus on scaling up our police department um, while also taking care of other needs that were identified in that report as far as whether if it's capital related, um, training related. Uh, and so again, I think that by the fall time is going to start feeling uh, very, very different as far as quality of life issues are concerned. Has Holyoke been able to recruit officers? Because that's been a problem, a significant problem in other municipalities. We have been, I think, so the, the, the list is much shorter than traditionally, from what I'm told, traditionally a city has ever seen, but there's still a list. Uh, we, we're a civil service community, and whenever we need officers, we, we, you know, we go to that list, the civil service list, and there are people there to recruit. It's not like there isn't anybody on that list, and so... You know, the, the list is getting shorter than what the city's ever seen before, and um, and that's certainly different. Uh, but, you know, it's not like no one is signing up to be an officer and there isn't any anybody applying for the jobs. Let me ask you this, one other aspect of policing, and this has been controversial in Holyoke and other municipalities too, and that is the Shot Spotter program. Because I believe I read that among the funds being expended is another is more money for uh, sh- shot spotter, and maybe you could just take a moment to describe that program or what it is, the technology, yeah, yeah. and why Holyoke is investing in it. So I don't I don't think it's controversial at all. I think that there is a a, a vocal group um, that makes it appear and sound controversial, and they raise very very good points. I don't want to. Uh, disqualify the concern because the the concerns are very much well my concern and we look into it and we make sure that as we go forward and exploring any system that we use here that you know we don't want to just spend money in something that are it's going to be ineffective or create greater liability to the city um, and and this said, we, we should note, ShotSpotter is a program where the technology identifies what it says are gunshots and in a specific location, and then police are dispatched to that location. The controversy is about whether it is actually effective, that is, that whether it identifies shots or something else, and whether it sends the police to the right place and all those yep. issues. So anyway, Mr. Mayor, please continue. Yep, and so I, I did have, I, I do have, um, we do have uh, uh, related data to respond to each of those points, and I, I don't have any of them in front of me. Um, uh, but yeah, so the system is is currently being used. There's a cost element, you know, that it is an expensive system. And so I don't think anybody is interested in spending a lot of money in something that's not going to work. Uh, but to date, uh, you know, information that I have received, there has been a level of effectiveness that we weren't getting or experiencing before ShotSpotter. And hopefully by the next show, I can have some data to share with you for sure of what we've collected to date. I look forward to that. Buzz? Mr. Mayor, this is Buzz, yeah. Um, I wanted to revisit, hi, I wanted to revisit something we talked about on the show and which was dominating the headlines back in the spring, which was uh, Dusty Christensen had written a report um, detailing complaints that were not acted upon by the Holyoke Police Department and uh, the uh, fact that, well, there was also a question of whether or not there was adequate staffing uh, that you raised as a question with respect to requests for public records that weren't responded to by the Holyoke Police Department, according to Dusty Christensen's report. 
Could you give us an update on those two matters? Yeah, I think so. Well, Dusty has a special relationship with our our, our police department, so I think it's a little bit more more passionate um, than what meets the eye here. Uh, but nevertheless, it doesn't. Again, I don't. You know, it doesn't justify it. You know, I'm not trying to justify the concern here. Uh, adequate staffing obviously is a concern. Also, um, practices and how we're uh, managing information, especially with the reform law shifting the way that it did. You know, there's a lot of new expectation, and people want things faster now. And so, it, it's it, there's a little bit more involved when trying to collect information that people are asking for, and that just means that we got to get more organized in how we maintain records and how we keep up with um, um, requests. Uh, but um, as far as uh, complaints are concerned, I, I so yeah, I, I again, you know, practices internally and you know how we're addressing complaints, whether they're internal complaints or external complaints. Uh, one of the things that you know, we do have a police relations advisory committee and at the last meeting they, they did talk about this and trying to uh, strengthen, you know, how can we make submitting complaints easier um, and not so cumbersome? So even even if it's something as simple as an electronic form online or when people walk into the station, um, you know, that it's not intimidating for anybody to submit a complaint. And that's an area that we certainly want to improve um, uh, for sure. Nobody should ever feel intimidated to submit any form of complaint so that we can properly record it and, and address them accordingly. Uh, but again, like each of the points that, you know, Dusty raised internally as mayor, I, I got the, the flexibility of getting answers. And when you start, you know, taking it apart, um, there's much more than what's being reported and it just becomes a little sensational in my opinion. Um, but, you know, we just got to be better at um, responding and communicating information and, and, and being transparent so that we 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 can help avoid uh, any potential perception perce perceptions that might be created out there by the news media. So, do you think that is the police department was now receptive and to taking complaints about officers and will in fact do investigations and will be responsive in a way that the reporting indicates has not been the case in the past? I mean, I guess the basic question is: Have things changed? Every issue is circumstantial, you know. So. It's not a black and white issue when you're talking about any one particular complaint. Every complaint has a, you know, it's 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 much more complex and, and complicated than than what people think. Um, but again, you know, if a member of the public wants to submit any form of complaint, there shouldn't be any complications or, or hurdle to that. It should be straightforward. You submit your complaint. Now, some people, you know, when you talk about policing issues. You know, it's it's never the job is not when it involves an individual. When it's your issue, it's it's an important one. No matter how small or big an issue might be to that person, it, there's a it, there's a big problem, whatever they're dealing with, and they want it solved in a week or 30 days. Or and each one is much more than that. But I can know I know that we the police department does follow up with people, does work pe work with people through their issues. But, you know, some some problems are, you know, much more, um, 
you know, it, it, people demand a lot and have high expectations when solving their problems. And it's much, again, it's much more complex than that. And each one is, is circumstantial and specialized. Um, but never the case, you know, there is an expectation here that uh, we do take in complaints. I do have an expectation that we respond accordingly, that we keep people updated, that um, that we're not just, you know, this perception of we're ignoring or hiding things. You know, I certainly don't want the public to ever feel that their local police department is is doing that. And that just means we have to be better at communicating and responding and that we have a system in place that is appropriately mitigating people's concerns. And I just want to follow is does your office track police frequency of responses with respect to both complaints and public records act? I if I no, I don't I don't track the the um I don't get weekly updates on what the frequency of updates and complaints are. No, um, I could tell you there are some efforts that I'm doing in this budget that I proposed to the council to help. Um, uh, you know, we introduced a CAFO position, a chief administrative financial office position. I don't have a a, um, a CFO, a CEO. I'm the chief of staff. I'm all of it. And that's why I paused in, in coming to this show because I um, just for about two months or so because I, I paused many um, invitations to things so I can focus solely on um, my responsibilities as far as internal management is concerned. And once I can bring in a CAFO, um, that'll be one area that'll free up some flexibility for me to do other things um, uh, like focus on things of what's happening in departments and what we can do. So. We do as much as we can. We scale up, up, we scale up and build. But I can tell you right now, whatever issues or concerns people might have in other communities and are across this country of policing, those issues don't exist here. Um, the issues that we do have is we're doing a lot with almost with fairly little. And so we're going to scale up so we can better respond to those quality of life issues around traffic, around noise. Um, uh, do more proactive policing around community response to issues around addiction, behavioral health, uh, but we have a very compassionate police department and, um, uh, you know, we just got to do a better job in, in what we're, how we're communicating information and improve the perception of what's going on. We are going to leave it there. We have been speaking with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia, on this Mayor's Monday. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for being back on the show. We really no, appreciate your you time. Thank you everybody. Thank you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Eight Cumberland Farms locations across Hampshire County will be changing hands. California-based real estate investment firm Reality Income Corp. has bought the convenience store chain as part of a $1.5 billion sale leaseback deal with parent company EG Group. The Hampshire County deal cost about $35 million for eight locations, including Amherst, Northampton, Southampton, East Hampton, and Williamsburg. The stores will continue to operate unchanged as Cumberland Farms, with no staffing changes expected. A 20-unit affordable housing project on Laurel Street, Northampton, will be fully funded. The money will come from direct state subsidies, ARPA money, and state and federal tax credits. This is one of 27 projects across the state to receive a combined $246 million in subsidies and tax credits from the Healy Driscoll administration. Valley CDC hopes to begin construction next spring and start the leasing process in the summer of 2025. The total development cost for the project is $11.7 million.
Deerfield is implementing a 25 mile per hour speed limit in places where no limit is posted. The select board had voted to officially reduce the townwide speed limit after years of complaints from residents. Select board member Trevor McDaniel tells the Gazette that although some people don't feel it works, he feels it will work well. McDaniel said the new limit will only affect roads that do not have posted speed limits. He doesn't anticipate that the town will change established limits either. Partial sunshine today, chance for a scattered shower this afternoon, a high of 78 to 82. Showers and drizzle likely tonight, overnight low of 58 to 64. Another mixture of sun and clouds tomorrow, another chance for widely scattered showers and a high of 78 to 82 afternoon showers on Wednesday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden vetó el miércoles una legislación que habría cancelado su plan para perdonar la deuda estudiantil. Es una vergüenza para las familias trabajadoras de todo el país que los legisladores continúen con este intento sin precedentes de negar un alivio crítico a millones de sus propios electores, dijo Biden en un comunicado al anunciar su veto. A pesar del veto, el plan de Biden aún no es seguro. La Corte Suprema de los Estados Unidos, dominada por una mayoría conservadora, está revisando un desafío legal que podría eliminar el programa. Se espera una decisión este verano. Si se promulga, el plan de Biden perdonaría hasta 20 mil dólares en deuda de préstamos estudiantiles federales para prestatarios que ganen menos de 125 mil dólares por año. Los pagos de préstamos estudiantiles se detuvieron al comienzo de la pandemia de COVID-19. Sin embargo, se reanudarán en agosto para cualquier persona cuya deuda no sea eliminada por el plan de Biden. En otras informaciones, el ex vicepresidente Mike Pence, que sirvió lealmente a Donald Trump durante cuatro años, criticó el miércoles a su ex jefe por el ataque al Capitolio de Estados Unidos en 2021 mientras lanzaba su campaña para la nominación presidencial republicana de 2024. Pence emitió su condena más contundente hasta la fecha del papel de Trump en el ataque del 6 de enero, cuando los partidarios del entonces presidente irrumpieron en el Congreso de los Estados Unidos para tratar de evitar que los legisladores certificaran la victoria electoral de Joe Biden. Creo que cualquiera que se ponga por encima de la Constitución nunca debería ser presidente de Estados Unidos, y cualquiera que le pidiera a alguien más que lo pusiera por encima de la Constitución nunca debería volver a ser presidente de Estados Unidos, dijo Pence en un discurso en Iowa que da inicio a la competencia por la nominación republicana el próximo año. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega, y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news up Update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we welcome back to our show Professor Amakar Shabazz, who is professor of the African Afro-Am department at UMass Amherst. We've head of the department, chair of the department at this point as well, a scholar of African-American history a uh, prolific author, and now the host of this segment on our show, Black in the Valley, now taking the mantle of leadership from uh, Carly Tartikoff and the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks. We are so pleased that Professor Shabazz can be with us and will be with us going forward. So pleased to, be, to have you with us, Professor. I'd like to focus uh, on this show in particular with what is the celebration 
of Juneteenth, a week from today. And I would appreciate your view as a scholar and as a historian on the importance of this date. But more specifically, I'd appreciate your perspective on the importance of the country to a significant degree embracing Juneteenth as a national commemoration. So can you help us with that? Wow. Glad to be here, uh, Black in the Valley Libs. And um, the importance, I think, with respect to uh, Juneteenth is that it really is one of the manifestations of the so-called racial reckoning, the so-called way in which uh, coming in the midst of COVID pandemic, coming out of COVID, um, and with the deaths of George Floyd, and um, it was from Texas, by the way, and uh, Breonna Taylor and so many others, that there was a, a, a real desire to try to reckon with racism, institutional, structural racism. And I think an outgrowth of that really came this embrace of, the, uh, of Juneteenth. Um, Juneteenth has been going on since 1865. Um, it uh, was largely in and around Texas for much of uh, its first uh, um, several decades, but we do then begin to see a kind of mission creep uh, where Juneteenth spread uh, far and wide. And um, you you raise Massachusetts, Massachusetts um, did, did step in a way uh, as a as a leader in many respects of making it an official holiday a year before the federal government made it an official holiday. It had been a state recognized holiday as it had been in many states uh, for many, many years. And all that means is, is that, you know, it, it's recognized as a holiday, but not celebrated. There's no time off. There's no uh, it, 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 it's, it wasn't um, an official celebration, but um, we, we, we saw that there was that opportunity to, to move it to actually being celebrated here in Massachusetts. And I think in many ways that was a catalyst for uh, Joe Biden and the White House to go ahead and sign the executive order the next year that made it a, an official uh, national holiday couple of aspects of Juneteenth as a federal holiday that I would appreciate your perspective on, Professor Amakash Shabazz. And one of them is that Juneteenth, June 19th, 1865, was the day when the news of the Civil War having been won by the North and the South surrender and the emancipation of the formerly enslaved people in the United States finally got to Texas. And It strikes me as an interesting uh, phenomenon that the uh, date of the surrender of uh, Lee to Grant at Appomattox, much less well-known date. Um, And and I'd appreciate your perspective as a historian why Juneteenth has come to the fore as the date to celebrate the end of slavery. Uh, And then I'd appreciate your perspective of what do we make of the fact that this is a celebration of what happened in Texas, given what has been uh, just horrifying events in the state of Texas of uh, uh, involving racial animus and uh, police misconduct. 
Well, you, you know, my wife and I are both, uh, we're both born in Texas, and we really have to just say that the energy of, uh, of Black Texans about this particular day, um, especially since the late 1960s, the 1970s, has just been intense. Um, in, in many ways, I say this was Juneteenth and the, the, the fire around it in the 70s in Texas was similar to black power, black arts in New York City, Chicago, other places around the country that give, gave us, you know, all of the, the burst of cultural energies in other places. Well, in, in, in Texas, when the black arts, the black power movement comes in, part of its cultural flowering was in this sort of uh, reviving of what had been a family communal uh, unofficial, uh, take the day off practice since 1860s, they, they, they seized upon this a hundred years later to really make it a, 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 uh, a way of asserting um, black cultural revitalization. Um, and, and that's what it was. And so we were, we were children of that energy. We were, we, we came up in it and, uh, and then it spread out and it's just, incredible because uh you go to washington dc you go to new york you go to all these places nowhere had a a, a day that folks just took off unofficially nobody you know whether you want to say january 1 and the signing of the emancipation proclamation a few you know high-end bourgeois black bourgeois might have had a little tea tea ceremony or you know i mean people might have had things here and there but it was always episodic it was never sustained it just didn't have that cultural revitalizing energy behind it that Juneteenth had. And so as it begins to spread, and it became an official state holiday in 1980 in, in Texas. And I don't mean a state recognized where, you know, like, like Arbor Day, we say, oh, it's tree day and you go on. No, I mean an official, you could take the day off. If you were a state employee, you could take the day off. Funny little story, and it'll be in the book that Dimitri and I are writing on this, but um, the black legislator from the Houston area, Al, Al Edwards, uh, who, um, who negotiated this, um, they made a proviso that state workers alternatively um, could take off Confederate Heroes Day. So they, when they made it a state official holiday in Texas in 1980, uh, the, 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 the Faustian bargain was... Could you stop there right there for one second? Confederate Heroes Day is a holiday? I'm telling you, in January. So you could take that day off if you were a state employee, uh, and while in June 19th, if you're a state employee, you could take that day off. So that's how it originally started. That was the Faustian bargain. Well... <laughs> That, that, but the energy behind it in Texas just grew from the 80s. It starts migrating out to other places, especially out west, where a lot of Texans, Texas was a conduit point to black migration uh, west. So you start seeing it in California and the Colorado, different places starts moving uh, throughout the deep south. Um, my family and I, we helped to, to, to bring it and, and promote it in Alabama, the eight years that we lived in Alabama. Uh, Oklahoma, it's all, it's been fairly big in Oklahoma being the proximity to Texas. So it just starts spreading. And, uh, and then, and then you come down in the last few years to this moment where it starts 
you know, be, uh, becoming an official state holiday in Massachusetts and then became an official national holiday. In signing the legislation that made Juneteenth a national, June 19th, a national holiday, President Biden said this. He said, great nations don't ignore their most painful moments. They don't ignore those moments in the past. They embrace them. He said, great nations don't walk away. We come to terms with the mistakes we made. And in remembering those moments, we begin to heal and grow stronger. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask Professor Amakar Shabazz, how do we reconcile that statement with the attempts now to eradicate the history of slavery and racism in the United States and the banning of books across the country. We'll address that right after this break. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. How many great books have you read? What's the next great book you'll read? Find it at the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair this Saturday. Ten bookstores, including Broadside. Thousands of books. A book browsing paradise. Yes, there's fiction. Yes, there's poetry. And children's books. First editions, limited editions, art books, signed books. For a book lover, it's an afternoon in book heaven. Join Broadside and ten more bookstores for the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair in the plaza behind Thorns this Saturday, June 17th, 11 to 6. What's the next great book you'll read? You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. Every month across the Pioneer Valley, one in three families struggles to buy diapers. That's why the Northampton Radio Group is teaming with the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire region in support of their annual diaper drive. Stop by the United Way of Franklin and Hampshire region offices in Northampton and Greenfield or at any Leo Auto Group dealership on King Street and donate diapers throughout the month of June. By donating to the diaper drive, you can help keep area children healthy and families secure. This message brought to you by the Leo Auto Group, the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire region, and the Northampton Radio Group. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our Black in the Valley segment with Professor Amalkar Shabazz. I raised the question before the break, Professor, about how we reconcile this celebration, this commemoration of Juneteenth, of June 19th, with all of these recent efforts to guess quite literally whitewash the country's history and ban books that deal with racism and slavery in our public libraries and in our public schools. Do you have some thoughts on how to put those two discordant uh, aspects of life in the United States today together? Yeah, it's unfortunate that a, uh, a particular political party and certain uh, uh, white nationalists, uh, white supremacist forces have 
uh, decided to try to gin this uh, black history, uh, black culture into uh, the, its culture wars, um, that somehow the, the study, the appreciation, the celebration, and the acknowledgement of true history, uh, the, uh, history that does center black, uh, the black experience, black truth, um, must necessarily uh, be anti-white, must necessarily project white people as oppressors and, uh, uh, and, and, and pathologically committed to, to, uh, to genocide and to doing negative things to people of color. You know, that's a way they're spinning it. But it need not be that way. We have ample precedent that it shouldn't be that way. And the quote you raised, and I have to say, that executive order um, uh, for Juneteenth uh, by Joe Biden, and when I get a chance and, and, and do my research at the White House, I hope to ask, you know, who wrote that? Who did, you know, the president work with on that? Because it's one of the best pieces I've ever seen. Uh, come from his pen, come from his mouth as the president of the United States. It is really compelling. And, uh, and, and yeah, he's staking out a correct position that great, great countries, great human beings uh, don't uh, uh, flinch from, from uh, the, the, the truth. Uh, they didn't, you know, they, they struggled with it in Germany. And of course, they're neo-Nazis in Germany, but uh, who try to make it a wedge issue. But overall, uh, sensible people in Germany embraced the fact that during the Nazi era of the late uh, um, 1930s through 1945, their country went in a terrible wrong direction that resulted in millions and millions of, of lives being taken and destruction of, of the wealth of the world. So the, uh, uh, they don't flinch from that. They deal with it. And that's where we've got to get to a place in the United States. And I think uh, the executive order that Joe Biden signed is a step is a good step in the right direction. Uh, Professor Shavaz, I'd like to turn to our local commemorations or observations and uh, of, of Juneteenth. Can you tell us what is happening here in Western Massachusetts? Absolutely, and I have to say, you know, um, I study holidays. I study this, and and I I look a lot at the precedent of the Martin Luther King holiday, and um, there've been a lot of uh, there's a direction in which um, government and the private sector, when they step in, they have a certain formula for for making for dealing with holidays. And I think Juneteenth is one that continues to be very resistant to that kind of to either commercialization or this kind of milk toast watering down. Uh, so that it's palatable to everybody kind of thing. And and when we look at what's happening with Juneteenth, there's a push against that. And one of the focus, one of the ways out is to foreground and to celebrate culture, expressive culture and the black contribution to expressive culture, which has been such a dynamic force in, in uh, throughout, throughout the, the history of blacks in the Americas. And so, for example, in Springfield, there's going to be a concert on the 19th of June, celebrating freedom at Symphony Hall. And, uh, and, and one of our great local composers, musicians, Avery Brooks, uh, uh, Avery Sharp is going to be, be participating in that. Uh, I think you've had them on air and uh, discussing that. Uh, the Black Vivid Festival from uh, two to nine on June 17th in Springfield. Uh, there's gonna be a Connecticut River Walk 
uh, as well as that the uh, Springfield City Library. There's a flag raising uh, for Juneteenth Jubilee flag raising on June 16th. Um, so it, it really is spreading here in the United here in in uh, in Amherst. There's multiple events from. Um, I think, uh, well, I'm, I'm talking with Amherst neighbors on uh, on June 15th, and I really look forward to that. Um, on um, the uh, 19th itself, uh, there's brunch and books with Dr. Shirley Jackson Whitaker uh, at the General Store and Local Art Gallery in the, uh, in the Mill District. There's uh, going to be Jubilee on the Commons at 12 noon, uh, continuing a tradition on the on the commons and then the sankofa gumbo of which i'm a part and the black business association of amherst is having the juneteenth jamboree from uh, 4 p.m to sundown at the mill river recreational area we are going to leave it that this has been black in the valley professor amakar shabazz thank you so much for being with us professor we really appreciate your time your expertise and your insights it is just a joy and a pleasure and an honor to have you with us thank you this is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. WHMP North Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And Bill Newman, we have, uh, it's, it's really a pleasure. We have a very special guest here, the British author, Elizabeth Loudon. Now, when I say British author, she uh, is very familiar with this region. She got her MFA at the University of Massachusetts. She taught at both Smith College and Amherst College. And uh, the book that we're going to be talking about has just been released recently. It's called A Stranger in Baghdad, where Elizabeth Loudon lived in 1975, 1976, I believe. Thank you for joining us, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This is literally an epic novel you have <laughs> written. It spans generations, and it spans geopolitical uh, relationship, both British and Iraq and the world. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty intense mm -hmm. undertaking. What made you undertake this book? <laughs> I think insanity, yeah. The the publisher has, has described it as a, a sweeping and a saga. Um, it's not that long, but it is longer than, a little longer than average. Um, the inspiration to write the book didn't actually come about until really until after 9-11, if I'm to be honest. Um, but the seeds of it was sown long before. 
Um, I went to Baghdad, as you said, and I spent six months there as a guest of the embassy where I managed to um, alienate my poor embassy hosts who wanted me to behave myself and just go to the social club and hang out with the other expats. And I did that for a few weeks and I got really bored. <laughs> and I met, started to meet um, at the club, I met people who were half Iraqi in that they had a British mother or European. And it was always a mother. There, I never met there might have been, but I never met an Iraqi-European couple where it was the other way around, um, as it were. And these were the elite professionals who might have been educated in part in Britain or even the States, and they were going to the club. And through them, I got to meet people who were, if you will, full Iraqis, who were their friends at university. These were undergraduates. Um, I was 18 at the time. And um, they were a diverse lot, my friends, but they included people who were quite radical and revolutionary. Well, I can say revolutionary because there was no revolution to be had, but they were definitely um, fighting tooth and nail to keep their independence and their creativity in the face of the Ba'ath Party. When the Ba'ath Party was rising yeah. in power when you were there. The Ba'ath Party had been around for a while. It didn't begin with Saddam Hussein. Of course, it began out of Syria, actually, where its long shadow is still chilling the political life there. Um, I believe a man... I might get this wrong, uh, Michael Aflac. But um, in Iraq at the time, the president was a man called al-Bakr. But al-Bakr was, if you will, it's like having the chancellor and the vice chancellor of a university. He was like the chancellor. And by the time I was there, the vice chancellor was guess who? Saddam Hussein. And he was already consolidating political power through this police and surveillance apparatus. So... His role models were Stalin, um, his chief role model was Stalin, and that's how it felt. It felt chilling and terrifying and weird, as well as, you know, wonderfully hot and exotic, of course. And then the other side of it is Iraqi culture, like most Arab cultures are all, as I understand, um, it's fantastically hospitable and warm and loving, and friendships run very, very deep. So... It was a place with a lot of contradictions, and I got swept away in a friendship circle of students who were um, up to all sorts of things, and we ran around and had fun and got into some trouble. And, and at some point you said, I've got an idea. Why don't I write a fictional novel <laughs> involving... A, a, and the voice, the <laughs> narration is this yeah. British-Iraqi yeah. uh, psychiatrist, right? Exactly. And, and her mother, Diane, who was... British. A, yeah. Exactly. So the novel is a reconstruction by an Anglo-Iraqi psychiatrist who works in London now who left Iraq called Mona. She's fictional. Um, but I should say that I had a number of friends who were like her in their background and education and life circumstances. And I'm still in touch with some of those friends today. And they gave me some um, a little help with just things like getting the right names for the characters in the book, some details. They're all reading the book right now. And I've, I've yet to hear of anyone who's finished it. So I'm waiting. I'm much more nervous about their reviews than I am about um, any other reviews. Um, but yeah, the novel is told from an Anglo-Iraqi point of view. So a kind of fractured point of view with um, a lot of tension within it, looking back at her mother's history as an outsider and a British wife in a country going through revolutions and turmoil and coup d'etat, where her own loyalties get split. Yeah. Are, are the events that happen in this book historically accurate? 
as much as I could make them. I um, One reason it took me an embarrassing number of years to write this book is I spent many years just on research. and how, I was, how, how embarrassing? Yeah. How many? I were in the double digits. Really? Uh, yeah, we're in the double digits here. Um, so I also was working. I ran a business. Um, I was a consultant for NGOs and universities and teaching and, you know, marrying and moving house. And I had many things on my plate. But <laughs> but, but I, it took me a long time. And one of the things I did was join the British Library when I moved back to Britain. And um, I like to tell people I consulted every single historical map of Baghdad in the British Library, because the truth is there are only six. So <laughs> it makes me sound smarter than I am. Um, well, but there was a lot of history. This begins yeah. in the 1930s. It begins in the 30s for the simple reason I wanted it to end in the 70s, because that was when I was there. It was a purely kind of um, sort of really selfish reason for doing it. I should say that most British women and European women who married Iraqis did so in the 1950s. Because at that time, before the coup that ended the monarchy in 1958, um, it was a very British-inflected country still. And a lot of British men came to Britain, went to Britain, to study engineering chiefly, sometimes medicine. And they would pick up a British wife and take her back. So most of the accounts that I relied on or I interviewed people to, I went, I traveled around interviewing a lot of people. They were of that generation. Diane is very unusual in that she went in the 30s. Um, and I did what I could with that in the narrative to make her sort of the queen, the sort of queen mother of all the later wives who came later on her. So she was kind of blazing a trail. Well, um, I've learned from Bill Newman that a wonderful thing is to have an author read from her book. In this case, the book is A Stranger in Baghdad. The author is Elizabeth Loudon. Would you bless us with a reading and set it up for us? Um, sure. I thought that since I'm in a, for the first time in my life, I'm in a radio station being interviewed on radio. You're doing a great job. Thank you. I would read a little bit about a radio station, the second king of Iraq, who's in this book. And I believe this is all historically accurate. Um, had a radio station called, um, called um, Qasr al-Zuhur, which was the name of his castle palace, which means the um, Palace of Flowers. And he broadcast every single morning, starting with... Um, do you remember Robert J. Lutzmer and his morning bird song? Of course. He spoke I a little know. slower than most of us. He spoke slower than me. I love how he woke, he, he woke us up, too. I woke up to him for so many years in the valley. And interestingly, King Ghazi tried to do the same. He woke Iraq up every morning with the sound of a nightingale on the radio. And the, the beautiful Arabic word for nightingale is bulbul. Um, so he had a radio station a bit like this in the heart of his palace, and he was broadcasting. How do you it, like our palace? It's just <laughs> even more beautiful, and your hydrangeas are lovelier than his roses. I actually have old photographs of that palace I managed to find online. Well, they call our flowers bull bull, too. <laughs> so he, um, he had a radio station, and it was managed by a man called Yunus al-Bahri, who was a very, it was red-headed apparently, and a very wild firebrand radio um, journalist who actually ran away to Berlin to work for the Nazis um, a little later in the novel. You hear about that. But um, Diane has been hired as a nanny to the little prince who will be the third king of Faisal. So she's in the royal palace. The king is trying to impress her, So along with Eunice. So they want to take her to see the radio station. So I thought I would share... Um, section that's about a, a minute or two max um, about that radio station. So 
I'm going to try to hold the book so I can see it. So they've just had lunch. She's been invited to a royal a lunch with the royal family, and her little boy Faisal, the, who's the, the prince. Um, Eunice, he says, let us go to the radio station. Diane looked at her watch. It was time for Faisal to be woken from his nap. The French nursery maid would care for him well enough, but she should be there. Could she get away with leaving? But then she remembered Duncan. She could tell him about this. It might mean something to him. Diane looked to Alia for help, but the queen wouldn't meet her eyes. She had to follow the men to a tiny room that had once been a gun cupboard. This was where the royal station was set up. The Germans had given Ghazi up-to-date radio equipment for Radio Al-Zuhor, or Flower Radio, named after the palace. It was Ghazi's idea to play the nightingale's trill every morning before his broadcast. Diane had heard the birdsong herself on her radio at Beit al-Haddad, before the boatmen began shouting on the river below. He is famous, my bulbul, said Ghazi. He cheers the people. Boys and their toys, she thought. Eunice sat behind a glass partition, watching Ghazi crouch close to the microphone. Ghazi's words rolled along at a fever pitch. The recording lasted only a few minutes, its end marked by a crescendo of exhortations as his hand slapped the table. Then he turned, smiling, and opened his arms in a wide gesture as if to say, You see? That was easy. It was all for the people, he told her. Not for the generals or the army, not the divan, not the lying British, forgive him, but the shepherds who tended their flocks and would lay down their lives for him. They knew the truth, that there was no real border between Iraq and Kuwait. This is their time, he said to Diane, as if she challenged him. Enough of letting foreigners put their heel on our neck, they say. The British ambassador has asked me to stop my radio broadcasts, but I do not answer to the British ambassador. Do I go to London and tell your king he is not to speak on the radio? She had no answer to that. How intriguing. Elizabeth Loudon, what I glean from your book is that um, Diane, her husband, Mona, her daughter, they remain strangers both in Iraq and in London. They don't, they're outsiders in both countries, yeah. even though they've inserted themselves into the culture of both countries. Can you explain that? Um, well, that's definitely the case. I mean, I think for many Iraqis I've known who grew up under the British um, educational system and political systems of the older generation, there is always a feeling, um, which I try to address a number of times in a number of ways in the novel, that you're never quite of one place or another. And then, of course, what happened under the Ba'ath Party and is something that we're seeing happening now in both my countries, in the United Kingdom and the United States, which is um, a rising insistence on nationalism and on national loyalty as opposed to um, individual and family loyalties, perhaps. And I think that that catches both Ibrahim, who's been educated in part in Britain and in a British medical school system. Um, so he's both never at home in Britain because he's Iraqi and over the years... Um, 
Islamophobia and the prejudice against Arabs, of course, rises. But he's not quite at home in Iraq either because he's the elite in British speaking. And then, of course, Diane is always an outsider because she's British. So, yeah. We are speaking with Elizabeth Loudon. Her recently released novel is A Stranger in Baghdad. We're going to continue the conversation right after this. And we should note that she will be at the Broadside this Wednesday, June 14th at 7 o'clock for a reading, a Q&A, a discussion. It's going to be totally fascinating because it's history, it's life, it's novel, it's novels at its very, it's fiction at its very best. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. The months following a child's birth can be of the most trying times of a woman's life. With the round-the-clock demands of a newborn, who is the time or energy for housework? Hi, I'm Amy Love from Green Love Eco Cleaning, and I'd love to put my team of eco-friendly cleaners to work for you. With our Green Care Postpartum Support Program, we offer discounted green cleaning services on a sliding scale to postpartum families for the duration of the fourth trimester, or the first three months after your baby is born. To find out more about the services we provide, check us out online at greenloveclean.com. Got chronic joint pain? Not having success with steroids, but trying to avoid surgery? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new, advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with author Elizabeth Loudon, whose book, A Stranger in Baghdad, was just recently released. And as Bill was saying, there's going to be a, a reading on June 14th at Broadside. Could you there tell us is. a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, I just decided to take the publication of this book as an excuse to come back to Northampton because I absolutely adore this town and everything about it. Um, it was my home in America. I was here 25 years and I became a citizen, but I wasn't here the whole 25 years, but most of it in Northampton. And I, I just love the town and it's such a thrill to be back. So I rang the, and emailed the Broadside and the wonderful Roz who works there, who's a brilliant events organizer, and um, told her, which is true, that it was my favorite bookstore and the one I took my little daughter to when I raised her here in Northampton. And so they kindly put me on their event schedule and I'm there on Wednesday and I did a sort of trial run back in the UK where I launched the book in um, a lovely old 1600s market hall where I live. 
and invited people and did um, and talked a little bit about how I came to write the book, um, some of which I just shared here and did some readings. And that went very well. So I'm I'm hoping people will enjoy both hearing about the book, but also asking questions and having a dialogue amongst themselves, because I just think there is so much to talk about here, so many themes, so much history. I don't have all the answers, but I want the book to spark conversation. So, well, yeah. this is historical fiction. Yeah. You chose uh, yeah, you chose to write a book about something you would have to do a lot of research I in did. order to write. There are easier ways to <laughs> write a novel than that. There well, certainly are. <laughs> why historical fiction? Other than I understand you lived in Baghdad and yeah. London, but why historical fiction? Um, I think the spark that really got me going, because I had to have a fuel to get me going and to jumpstart me, because I had a lot on my plate, as I mentioned. I was working, I had family obligations, um, and I, I'm someone who needs a lot of sleep. I know writers who write at night. I'm not one of them. And... I found the Gulf War was hard for me to endure because I had lived there, but I didn't really start writing this book back in the 90s. I was living in Northampton and I just kind of had to sit and listen to people and what they had to say. And I didn't always like what I heard. But then 9-11 happened, which was so traumatic for all of us um, and horrifying at so many levels. But I also realized the day it happened that things were going to change for the worse in terms of Middle East geopolitics and attitudes towards here towards the Arab world and Muslims. And, you know, it's a no-brainer, but I was right. And when the great protests began in about 2003, there was a lot of protests and marches. And I took part here. And in London, famously, we had a march um, when Tony Blair was still in power that exceeded a million people and got coverage. And that's when I really started writing because I thought, I'm not on my own. There are people who care enough about the truth and care enough about not just taking the top line, media line about the militaristic narratives uh, about 9-11, you know, weapons of mass destruction and so forth. And I started writing the book then and then I was interrupted for a few years and then I went back to it. But I think my both my anger at what was happening, but also my sort of um, passionate wish to contribute, even the tiniest, literally a drop to an ocean, um, to contribute to a progressive reevaluation of Middle East geopolitics was enough to keep me going. Whereas if I'd written a novel closer to my own home or about myself, I, I think I would have got bored quicker, actually. And I, I like, I get bored and I love I like having something to get my teeth into. And I loved the research. I loved interviewing. I interviewed, you know, Iraqi refugees living in strange circumstances. Well, I, is that part of your I purpose to remind us that Iraqis are real? I mean, we're not in the front page anymore. Absolutely. 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 And one of the questions that's always fascinated me all my life is how much are we our culture? How much are we our family? How much are we individuals? How much do we all hold in common? And how much do we have to recognize that we are different depending on how we were raised and where we live? And that there is always, there's never a final answer there. Um, but I'm really fascinated by it. And I just had such warm friendships with these Iraqi people and I wanted to honor them. And I think all of those impulses were emotional enough to keep me going in the times when I had to get up at five in the morning to work. So, well, yeah. because uh, yeah. your book, I was uh, involved in your book, A Stranger in Baghdad, and 
I was at, with a group of people the other night, on Saturday night, when people started talking about um, Putin as a war criminal and mm-hmm. the fact that under false pretenses he invaded a sovereign nation mm-hmm. and that according to one estimate there's 120,000 U- Ukrainians who are now dead mm-hmm. and I couldn't help myself. I mm-hmm. had to point out that we invaded a sovereign nation and according to Iraqi body bags there was 186,000 mm-hmm. people estimated to mm-hmm. have died as a result of our occupation and invasion yeah. and that of uh, that's a, a country of 25 million mm-hmm. Ukraine is a country of 46 million of those 25 million 5 million mm-hmm. were left homeless as a result of the damage that we did to yeah. their homes i just i we have to keep that in perspective and i wonder as you were writing this and decided in the yeah. time sequence that you chose there's a lot of history that comes after this story there is um I think that there has been a wonderful outpouring of literature, increasingly on the Iraqi side, about the years since first the um, invasion of Kuwait and the Gulf and the and the Gulf War and, and onwards. What comes after my book, as it were? Um, there have been some incredible books um, by American authors, uh, many of whom served in the military in Iraq. And there have o- there's also many books, many of them published by my publisher, Hupo Publisher by Iraqis who lived through those wars. So first of all, I felt like there was a lot being written about that already. Um, and I'm, I'm not really a political writer. I'm not a historian. Um, and I actually came across a privately published account of a nanny who did go to work in the royal palace when, you know, at around that time. And I was just intrigued by the fact that there was this backstory Going back, and I should say that of the books that inspired me, and many, many, many books inspired me so much, but one was The Raj Quartet by Paul Scott, which isn't one book, it's four. And I first read those in the 80s here in Massachusetts, and I went back and reread them and his other books, Staying On. And he was only in India for a few months, and then he went into his bedroom for about 20 years with the bottles of whiskey, and he produced the Raj Quartet, which is one of the great masterpieces um, about British and uh, British colonial impact on another country. And this is not the Raj Quartet, but I, I loved that deep dive. I loved it. Well, yeah. Elizabeth Loudon is out of her bedroom, away from the whiskey, and <laughs> yeah, you're going to be doing indeed. a reading at the, at the yeah. Broadside. Remind us one more time, yeah. what and when. It's on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. at the Broadside Bookstore. It's, an, of course, an open event, and I really hope that old friends and new will show up. And please bring questions. Come and challenge me, because I love being asked questions as I'm being asked right now. Thank you. The book is A Stranger in Baghdad. The author is Elizabeth Loudon. Thank you so much for... And, oh. and Bill's right. We love your accent. We love that you <laughs> you rang the broadside books. Oh, <laughs> I, heard, I heard that too. Just, I just rang the broadside. I, I'm, I'm going to ring the broadside soon. I have a question or two. Well, well, thank you. Best of luck with this thank book. You. It's really an, it's a wonderful piece of historical fiction. Elizabeth Loudon, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Eight Cumberland Farms locations across Hampshire County will be changing hands. California-based real estate investment firm Reality Income Corp. has bought the convenience store chain as part of a $1.5 billion sale lease-back deal with parent company EG Group. 
The Hampshire County deal cost about $35 million for eight locations, including Amherst, Northampton, Southampton, East Hampton, and Williamsburg. The stores will continue to operate unchanged as Cumberland Farms, with no staffing changes expected. A 20-unit affordable housing project on Laurel Street, Northampton, will be fully funded. The money will come from direct state subsidies, ARPA money, and state and federal tax credits. This is one of 27 projects across the state to receive a combined $246 million in subsidies and tax credits from the Healy Driscoll administration. Valley CDC hopes to begin construction next spring and start the leasing process in the summer of 2025. The total development cost for the project is $11.7 million. Deerfield is implementing a 25-mile-per-hour speed limit in places where no limit is posted. The select board voted to officially reduce the townwide speed limit after years of complaints from residents. Select board member Trevor McDaniel tells the Gazette that although some people don't feel it works, he feels it will work well. McDaniel said the new limit will only affect roads that do not have posted speed limits. He doesn't anticipate that the town will change established limits either. Partial sunshine today, chance for a scattered shower this afternoon, a high of 78 to 82. Showers and drizzle likely tonight, overnight low of 58 to 64. Another mixture of sun and clouds tomorrow, another chance for widely scattered showers and a high of 78 to 82. Afternoon showers on Wednesday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You spend seven or eight hours a night together, and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So, when you're in my store, trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point, I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down, and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin. Robin from Talon. Think about it. Seven or eight hours, night after night? And what do you really know about mattresses? I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated. I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. Talon Furniture, the small, unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. Having a hard time with your mental health or substance use? You have options. The 24-7 Behavioral Health Helpline is your front door to care. Call 833-773-2445 to speak with a trained staff member and get connected to the support you need. Want to see someone right away? Visit mass.gov cbhcs to find your local community behavioral health center, a service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. It is time for our jewel of a segment every Monday, Writer's Block with Megan Zinn and the fantastic guests that she brings to us. Who do we have this week? Hi, my guest is writer Jeremy Bushnell. Welcome, Jeremy. 
Hello, thank you for having me. Um, Jeremy Bushnell is the author of three novels, The Weirdness, The Insides, and his latest, Relentless Melt. And all three of them are about magical claptrap, diabolical villainy, and ordinary human confusion, which is a description I love. And Jeremy also teaches writing at Northeastern University in Boston. And he will be appearing at Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley on Wednesday, June 14th, two days from today, at 7 p.m. And you can find out more on the Odyssey website, odysseybks.com. So to start, Jeremy, um, tell us about your new novel, Relentless Melt, which Publishers Weekly called an off-kilter delight. Sure. It's a historical, a historical novel. It takes place in Boston in 1909. And it follows Artie Quick, who is a young woman who decides she wants to become a, a teen detective. Um, and as the book unfolds, she realizes that what she's becoming is more of a supernatural investigator um, because inexplicable things begin to happen. She also starts to think about her gender in interesting mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you read a little bit um, from the beginning? I certainly the will. First page or so. Here's the opening of the book, which Mm -hmm. takes place, she's about to um, take her first course in criminal investigation at a school that's being run out of the YMCA that's called the Evening Institute for Young Men. So Artie Quick restlessly paces the second floor of the YMCA building, passing the door to the classroom and then turning back, approaching it again, trying to build up the will to enter. It is 7.57 p.m., according to the wooden clock. Class begins in three minutes. Three minutes to eight, Artie thinks. That's perfect. Three minutes to eight is the perfect time to arrive on the first night of class if you want to make absolutely no impression. It's safely on time by any measure. The class laggards will surely show up later than you. But it's also not too early. It reduces down to a mere shaving the period during which you have to sit there waiting for class to start, looking at people while they look at you. It's the perfect time, Artie thinks, beginning to sweat, even though it's a cool October evening outside. Go in now, Artie thinks. If it gets any later, you'll lose your nerve. Any later and you'll have to admit that you weren't brave enough after all. Go in now, but not quite yet. One last glance at the wooden clock that hangs on the wall between classrooms. Now it's 7.58. One last moment to squint at the tiny pentagonal window behind which the pendulum swings to examine the face reflected in the dark glass, the willful jut of the jaw, the tiny notch of a frown line between the eyebrows. It isn't the face of a person who's not brave. I love the, um, thank you, this was uh, Jeremy Bushnell reading from the beginning of his new novel, uh, Relentless Melt. And I love the way that you bring in time um, so immediately in the first couple of paragraphs, which I now, having read the book, looking back at this beginning, time is so essential to it. Um, So um, overall, can you tell us, well, first of all, can you tell us um, what the title refers to without, um, you know, without spoiling Anything. Sure. Yeah. The the title is uh, the, the meaning of the title is revealed right at the epigraph right at the very beginning of the of the book. I've got a few epigraphs there, and um, one of them is from Susan Sontag, the the critic and novelist, um, and she's written a famous book on photography. The book is also concerned with photography because we're at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Photography is 
relatively new. There's consumer cameras that are falling to the hands of people. And one of the characters in the book is a photographer. But there's this wonderful quote that I read from her years ago from her book on photography, where she says, precisely by slicing out this moment and freezing it, all photographs testify to time's relentless melt. And I had pulled that out uh, probably 20 years ago. And I was just like, one of these days, I have to write something that's worthy of that title, Relentless Melt, because it's just such a great phrase. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, so evocative. So um, now I've finally written the book that yeah, clicks with the that title. It definitely does. Um, uh, Jerry and Bushnell, can you tell us what sparked the idea for this story in particular? Sure. Well, this this bit that I just read is at the the Evening Institute for Young Men, which is being run out of the YMCA. And um, the funny thing about that is that, as you mentioned when you read my bio at the beginning, I teach at Northeastern mm -hmm. University, and that's the roots of Northeastern University. You know, I, I came upon all this early stuff about the YMCA running a night school because I was researching the history of the institution that I teach at. And uh, Northeastern, you know, Listeners in the area might know it's a sort of unusual school. Mm -hmm. They have a co-op program where they do have students go through in five years. They work for one year in a in a at a business. You know, in in most cases, they do something called co-op there, and that all stems from the original thing that Northeastern was run out of out of the YMCA as a as a sort of a night school, a vocational school uh, essentially, where they were the YMCA was like we train young men to have healthy bodies. <laughs> But we should do a little bit more to make sure that they have healthy careers, that they can be trained to be good workers in the in the workplace. And they so they started up this this school, and there's still a YMCA building on on Northeastern's campus. They still teach classes out of that building. Mm -hmm. It's not. I don't think it's the same one. I think the original one is lost in a, a fire, but wow. they rebuild the YMCA. And so I got interested in researching that kind of stuff. And um, the more I dug into the past and sort of found strange things about the history of early Northeastern and the history of early Boston, the more I was like, this stuff has to go in a, mm -hmm. in a novel, you know, you know, novels the way it makes sense of the world. So it's like, it has to, has to go in. Yeah. Um, my guest is Jerry, B Jeremy Bushnell, whose book is Relentless Melt, and he'll be appearing at Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley on Wednesday, uh, June 14th. Um, as you, you, you alluded to um, um, when we started talking, the, the main character is a gender nonconforming person uh, living in 1909. What made you want to explore that experience in that context? Well, yeah, I wanted to do something that was in the the girl detective mm -hmm. genre. You know, it's a, sort of a, a well-known genre, and I was like, I really want to try my hand at running a young female detective. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to put her at this school, but the school is for men only, right? So I'm going mm -hmm. to we'll do some historical cross-dressing and have her going there. But then as I started to look into it, you know, I did my research carefully about historical cross-dressing. And there's a lot of evidence that people who were historical cross-dressers were sort of, if they were around today, they would be considered to be trans mm -hmm. individuals, you know, or gender non-conforming individuals. We sometimes talk about like, oh, this person moved out west and disguised herself as a man to become a sheriff or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, these cases. And people nowadays are like... She didn't disguise herself as a man to become a sheriff, mm -hmm. you know, like he was a man and took a male job, mm -hmm. you know, but was probably, it's probably an issue of their gender, their gender identity, wanting to live in accord with their, their true gender identity, you know. So I 
became very cautious of writing a story that was about like a young woman in disguise. Yeah. You know? And I was like, I don't want it to be a story about someone who's in disguise. I want it to be a story about someone who's actually trying out a different gender identity at mm-hmm. the time. And she doesn't have the language for what trans is or what gender nonconforming is, but she's trying to live out her life in accord with an identity that tells her that she's not strictly speaking a woman. Yeah. And that really, um, that, that really comes through. I had that same thought that she does not have the language, um, for her identity. Um, but, but it's definitely more than just disguising herself so she can get into this class. It's yeah. clearly com- more comfortable in her skin when she's wearing that suit and not conforming to, the stereotypes of what a woman was supposed to be in that era. That's right. Yeah. yeah. In her in, in in her socioeconomic class, um, and um, so what? What? Um, so you teach writing, um, which I I always find really fascinating. As somebody who's a writer, I'm always fascinated by how one t- actually teaches writing, um, and um, how does what kind of themes do you do you find your students exploring um, in their work? Uh, uh, that's a great question, you know, and I mean, some of what I teach is just garden variety composition, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I always love teaching first year composition, I teach a fair amount of first year composition, my students come in, I have great interest in the whole wide world, you know, yeah. but I do also teach fiction courses, I occasionally teach some poetry courses, you know, and they're, you know, they have a wide range of, of interests, you know, they are, there's a lot of students who want to write fantasy mm-hmm. a lot of students want to write science fiction and i think they're interested in the way that that fantasy can hold up a, a distorted mirror to yeah. our own <laughs> our own world you know they're they're interested in in some cases making a true high fantasy world with its own interesting lore and history and strange continents and you know all that all that wonderful stuff uh, i try when possible to get them to also focus on the the human, mm-hmm. you know, when you read my, my little bio at the beginning, it says I'm interested in magical stuff, magical claptrap, but I'm also interested in moments of ordinary human confusion, yeah. you know, and I sort of feel like if you're going to write a big fantasy novel, don't forget that the people in your fantasy world are going to have ordinary problems in addition to high fantastic problems, you know, and I, I think trying to get those in balance is uh, something that I encourage my students to do. Yeah. Um, so my guest is Jeremy Bushnell, who um, is the author of Relentless Melt, and he will be appearing and reading at South Hadley Bookshop in South, excuse me, Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley. Can't believe I mixed that up. Um, on Wednesday, June 14th at 7 p.m. And you can find out more on their website, odysseybks.com. And I think we're going to take a break and we'll come back and talk some more with Jeremy Bushnell. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. Hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. 
So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door's open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance. For complete contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at whmp.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. Using WIC is easier than ever. You can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. Visit us at mass.gov WIC, brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with our weekly Writer's Block segment with Megan Zinn and her guest, Jeremy Bushnell, who will be um, signing his book, Relentless Melt, at the Odyssey Books uh, on June 14th. That's this Wednesday at 7 p.m. Yeah. So, Jeremy, um, how being a, being a writing teacher, how does teaching writing and, and working with all these um, young and probably not, not always young people on their writing, how does it affect your own writing, and or does it? Yeah, I think it does, you know, and you have to, to some degree... Uh, to teach it well and to distill it down to a syllabus where you're going to be like, all right, mm-hmm. we're going to go over mm-hmm. the important things of like, here's how to teach fiction. You know, you have to kind of codify it to, to some degree, you know, you have to, you have to really look at it and be like, what are the elements that really make a story work, you know, and what should be the first thing that you, that you start with? That's different for every writer, of course, but you have to organize it in some way to lead students through it, you know? And it does require a lot of rather intensive looking mm-hmm. at your own mm-hmm. process, you know, and it's changed for me over the years. When I first started teaching writing, I was like, you start with the big themes. It's yeah. always the themes that, that drive a piece of fiction, you know, but a great piece of fiction is driven by its great themes, you know, and that was 20 years ago, you know, and over, over the 20 years, I sort of pivoted and was like, no, it's, it's character. You know, you really need to start with a, with a character who's, who's memorable or a character who's likable or interesting or who the readers want to, want to follow through, you know, through their adventures or the troubles that they, that they get into. And I'm not sure what's right. Every, every writer and Mm -hmm. every reader who's listening to this is going to have a different, a different attitude. But I I do think that my, my writing improved when I started Mm. to focus more on character than on themes. Like the themes will emerge organically. You want to start with the, the, a character who people want to spend some time with. Yeah, and will connect to. Yeah. Um, are you so taking a, a bit of a pivot. You wrote a piece for Crime Reads that I looked at about what music to pair with certain books, which which yes. I thought was a great little article. What pairs? What music pairs well with Relentless Melt? Well, it's, it's funny, you know, Relentless Melt is set in 1909, and I did some research on what the music is like in, in 1909. Mm-hmm. There are some very early, like, ragtime-esque mm-hmm. bands, but a, a lot of it is sort of like uh, kind of pompous marches or, mm-hmm. or Gilbert and Sullivan-esque show tunes or whatever. So 
I really didn't want to do a soundtrack that was that kind of stuff. It's not the kind of stuff that I that I listened to. I, mm-hmm. I listened to a lot of like kind of difficult abstract electronic music. <laughs> so there's a band called Coil, which uh, you know they came out of the industrial music scene, and they you know they're they're British and they've got a lot of a uh, sort of strange occult elements in their mm-hmm. music. In their music, my my book deals with the occult. Mm-hmm. They've got a great record called time machines only four long tracks that are basically just long electronic synthesizer drones and since the book is concerned with time Mm -hmm. concerned with magic uh i think that coils time machines is just a perfect album to put on in the background i'm I'm certain i listened to it as i was writing this writing this book i love that um my guest is writer jeremy bushnell we're talking about his new novel relentless melt so um, tell me a bit about like, who, who are the writers that have influenced you um, that you love to read? Yeah, sure. You know, I'm, I have sort of an interesting, I don't know, I've got a long, a, a big library and I read a lot of books, you know, like, like many writers. Um, and I read a ton of fiction, of course. But I've always been interested in reading very widely and very democratically. You know, I will read just like uh, airport thriller, and then I'll read a book of very experimental poetry, mm-hmm. and then I'll read some academic theory or, or what have you. But I'm most interested in writers who sort of um, split the difference to, mm-hmm. to some degree, you know, writers who have some kind of genre element in their work, because mm-hmm. I love genre. Yeah. You know, I love fantasy. I love science fiction. I love horror. I cut my teeth on those kinds of books as, mm-hmm. a, as a young person. As I advanced in my, you know, education i started to read more literature with a capital l you know and i love what literature does and what only literature can do that's not genre writing that's a love what genre writing can do so I, I got interested in writers who could bring a little bit of both to the table like a good example might be um colson whitehead mm-hmm. uh, colson whitehead's mm-hmm. like yeah. very well known for his great literary novels the underground railroad or, or what have you you know but the underground railroad also has these strange magical mm-hmm. realist elements you know Colson Whitehead wrote a book called Zone One, which is basically a, a zombie novel, oh. you know, but it's infused with all this great attention to character, yeah. to setting, to tale, and so on. Yeah, beautiful A science language. fiction writer like William Gibson would be another one who's mm-hmm. a big influence on me. You know, he's really a genre writer, but I think he's really a, a great underrated master of character, of, of dialogue, of, of detail. You know, his, his books are always very well observed. Or uh, John Le Carre, mm-hmm. you know, who recently on a similar writer is known as a writer of spy thrillers but if you look at his books as studies of character they're really so so wonderful the the, the human psychology yeah. of all his tragic espionage figures is just really fantastic you know so those are the writers who i really take as my my lodestones when i'm trying to write this this sort of novel that, that deals with the magical and deals with the fantastical but also is based in characters of a real mm-hmm. human psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I'm actually reading um, my moderator at this uh, uh, Odyssey Bookshop uh, mm-hmm. reading mm-hmm. on Wednesday is a uh, fellow Melville House writer by the name of Chris Boucher. He lives out in Western Mass. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrote a wonderful book called How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive, <laughs> which is... Um, the title is taken from a car repair manual because mm-hmm. what if you made it literal? You know, what if mm-hmm. there was a world where there was a person who was trying to raise a car is like <sighs> their son, you know, and it's kind of, it's absurdist and it's also tragic. And so it's a wonderful book. I'm reading his second book, which is called golden delicious, um, which is about um, 
sort of the myth of Johnny Appleseed oh, and wow. sort of the history of Western Mass. As you know, Johnny Appleseed has a, a connection to Western Mass, and uh, but it's also a wonderful metafictional experiment. So I've been really enjoying um, his book, and he'll also be out with me on on Wednesday. We'll be in some Q and A. Well, I'd like uh, oh Q and A. Partly what I was going to ask you about Jeremy Bushnell, the author of Relentless Melt. When you are at this event in Odyssey Books uh, at 7 o'clock on Wednesday, June 14th, and it's being moderated uh, by Chris Boucher, what do you hope happens as an author who's there for a signing? Other than selling books, what do you hope happens with those who are in attendance uh, in terms of a Q&A or what uh, kinds of questions do you invite and love? Oh, sure. You know, I mean, any kind of process question is always so wonderful. You know, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are curious about like how writers do their work, and I'm happy to I'm happy to answer those uh, those sorts of questions. People can sometimes be nervous about that, and so um, one question that I sometimes ask, you know, when you're at a Q and A, and sometimes they're like, okay, it's time for Q and A, and and no one has a question, <laughs> and I'm I'm not sure what question I should should ask. Sometimes something I just ask people sometimes they say. What is a question you wish someone would ask you? I love that. That's kind <laughs> of what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the writer can 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 concoct something. So in, in the past, I have, I, I think I've answered that question by saying, I wish someone asked me about my my social media presence. <laughs> you know, because it gives me an opportunity to talk about my Twitter, my Twitter mm -hmm. feed, or. Um, and sometimes I wish people would ask about some other projects that I do. I've got my finger in some various other interesting, interesting projects, and so I would love to talk about things that aren't my writing or that are my writing in other non-novelish venues. Mm -hmm. you know? So that can mm -hmm. be that can be a fun, fun things to talk about. Well, that uh, we only have a couple more minutes, but that of course leads me to have to ask: What are the other projects that you're working on outside of if you're writing? <laughs> And now, as I'm also working on a, a like a tabletop role-playing game ah, in the sort of the style of mm -hmm. like uh, Dungeons and Dragons or, or what have you. It's actually a very rich, um, independent role-playing game scene out in Western Mass. Some people in mm -hmm. Northampton who were very um, done some very groundbreaking role-playing games from out of that that world. And I know some of the people in that world. So I started to dabble my fingers into into that, and I've been working for about a year on a homegrown role-playing game system. I'm not sure if it will ever see the light of day, but it's, uh, it's kind of set in a fantastical world, and it's about academics and cops who are vying vying for control of a, a demon haunted island is the the high concept line there so that's that's a lot of fun that's awesome um bill you had a question i, I do i'd like to go back to this uh q a you're going to have uh, uh christopher uh, uh boucher who is on our show with his book how to keep your volkswagen alive he is a real talent he's mm -hmm. very funny he's a wonderful author. Are you going to do a conversation with him? Is he going to introduce you? What's his role in this? Yes, he's moderating and he's leading. He's leading the Q and A. And he and I have known each other for for quite a quite a while. You know, because we sort of came up through our our first books came out around the same time. Now we're both on our third books. And um, he and I have, he teaches in Boston also. So he and I have met and spent time together. We have a, a very easy rapport oh, and very very similar um, backgrounds in some ways. So it should be a lively a lively conversation. I love that. Um, so just wrapping it up and just real quickly, are we going to see more books with Artie and Theodore? Is it a start of a theory series? Well, 
I'm going to keep that a little bit of a, of a mystery okay. at, right. at the moment. You know, uh, when Melville House wrote in the book, they were like, there's these endearing characters. They're very likable. But do we even know if they will survive? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So I don't want to spoil That's will they point. still Shouldn't be around anything. at the end of the book. But I will say that at the end of the book, there are some hooks for like yes. this potentially a sequel here. Absolutely. We've been properly teased. Thank so. you so much for being here, Jeremy. Um, and Jeremy Bushnell's new book is Relentless Melt, and he's going to be at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley on Wednesday, June 14th at 7 p.m. And find more info on their books on their website. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Megan. For the rest of you, thank you for joining Talk the Talk. Remember, walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. My name is Silas Kopp. I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years, they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at cnaam.org. Call 413-587-0088. WHMP, North.